We continue the Shear in Navi. We started this story last week, and just to review it, a couple of sentences, because we did not delve into this deeply enough. We spoke about the fact that the woman whose child Elisha Hanavi had brought back to life had gone to the land of the Plishtim because of the famine in Israel. She stayed there for seven years. She returned and found that her house and field had been taken from her forcibly. And so she came to the king, the king of the Jews, to appeal to him to have her property returned. It just so happened coincidentally that at that moment as she came towards him, the king was speaking to Gehazi. Gehazi was the student, the disciple of Elisha Hanavi. Gehazi, because of a misjudgment in his part, because of an overzealousness or a desire for wealth, had taken some money from Naamon, a general of Aram, whom Elisha had cured of his leprosy. Because of this, Gehazi was cursed with leprosy himself, which meant a death penalty, because leprosy is fatal. And so, due to his leprosy, he could not live in Eretz Yisrael. One who was a leprous Tomei, and cannot live in the land of Kedusha Tara. Now, the king of the Jews was very curious as to the prowess, the powers of Elisha Hanavi. So he was speaking to Gehazi at this moment, and he said to Gehazi, tell me, you are a student of Elisha Hanavi. I'm very fascinated by the stories of Elisha Hanavi's miracle powers. Tell me of these miracles he performed. And Gehazi said, Your Majesty the King, it just so happens that right here coming towards you is the woman and the son, the child, whom Elisha Hanavi had brought back to life. Well, as we said, the king returned her field and home to this woman. And this was the end of this item. There was one thing wrong, though. One more than fatal error involved. Yora says that Gehazi, though he had been convicted of a crime, crime was that he took money from Naaman against the wishes of his master, Elisha Hanavi, for which he deserved not just death, but to lose his Olam Haba, Elisha Hanavi told him he's going to grant him a pardon as far as Al-Mahab is concerned. He'll have leprosy, which means death, but he will still get Ganadin. At this point, Gehazi committed the worst possible mistake, not a mistake, but a deliberate act, which now cost him his Ganadin forever. This act right now, Gehazi lost Ganadin forever, meaning that he went to Gehenna forever. What was this crime that was so great that could not be erased and cost him eternal life. Gemara says there are very few sins in existence that are that serious, or the penalty is so great that regardless of a person's credits, regardless of a person's mitzvahs, a person still can never get to Ganadin, which means he loses the key to Ganadin. There are certain, a certain small number of items which we'll discuss in detail in the Gemara class. These are called the key to Ganadin. One of these items was the sin of Gehazi. When Gehazi replied to the king, he said to the king, 
this is the woman, this is the child that Elisha Hanavi brought back to life. He said Elisha Hanavi's name without using the word Hanavi or Elisha my rabbi. The Gemara says that to speak, to mention one's rabbi's name without the title rabbi is the same as speaking Hashem's name in vain, which means that there is no pardon for it. It is a sin that is so serious that one loses eternally the key to Ganadin. And though until now Gehazi had been spared that worst of all penalties, he now brought upon himself his own everlasting doom by mentioning Elisha Navi's name without saying the word Rebbe. This is one item. Second item, Rabbeinazal says in this statement, the king asked Gehazi, tell me of the great things that Elisha Navi performed. Rabbeinazal says, what was the secret power that Elisha Navi possessed? How did he perform these miracles? What exactly did he do in order to be able to bring a dead person back to life? Was it a special word that he used, a mystic word, or was it calling upon some angels to assist him when there couldn't be any because the power of Chiyas is not even in the hands of angels? Or did he use other tactics? Did he issue a command to heaven? What was the secret of his success? Benadol says that the secret of Elisha Navi's success and Eliyahu Navi, in all these cases, they performed the miracles purely with the power of tefillah, only through tefillah. The same powerful weapon which Moshiach will use in combating and overcoming all the enemies of the Jews. This is the clay Zion, the weapon that is always victorious, and always successful. If wielded by a tzaddik emes, then it must prove successful. This is the only way, the only manner in which Elisha Navi was able to perform these miracles. If he had to bring back a dead person to life, if he had to have Naaman's leprosy cured, if he had to perform any miracle, he did it by tefillah, by being mispalo, davening, praying to Hashem, with the kavona and purity which he possessed, this was how he was able to perform these mifsim, these wondrous miracles. Now to deviate further, let's look at a really fascinating sidelight. In the Gemara we find a number of items, laws, that are written up in the Torah. The Gemara discusses these items, discusses them, it debates them. Rabbis of the Gemara debate them. They go into discussion, controversy, they take count, and they rule upon these laws. This refers to all the laws mentioned in the Torah. Yet, we have what is known as a Shulchan Aruch, it's a code of law, a legal document. In this Shulchan Aruch that we have, we do not find all the laws mentioned in the Gemara or in the Chumash find that a large number of laws are omitted. These laws are called laws that pertain only to the time when Mashiach will come. Those laws are not found in the Shulchan Aruch. For example, 
We have a Shulchan that consists of four divisions, Chayim, Yerdea, Cheshemishpot, Ebenezer, that cover every facet of law. Yet there are no laws there referring to Karbonais, sacrifices in the Holy Temple, the Beis HaMikdash. You have a lot of laws, a lot of Gemaras, on the different types of sacrifices, which sacrifices are burnt completely, which ones are partially burnt, partially eaten by the Kohen, some which all participate, which sacrifices are considered holy of holies, which are considered partially holy, which sacrifices are the, the type of service on the Mizbeach, the altar itself, different types of zrikas, haddam, the sprinkling of the blood. There are many chapters written in the Gemara about this, different types of kabonos, when they are brought, how they are to be sacrificed, how long they may be eaten, and so on. This is one of the most difficult, most intricate set of laws that exist. And yet, not one single word of this is found in the Shulchan Aruch, Because this is called Hilchasil Mashiach. We'll worry about this, we'll take care of this when Mashiach comes. The Shulchan Aruch consists of laws only that pertain to human beings, the Jews' life today, as is in Golis. Now, amazingly, what would you say to the fact that this case we have just discussed is brought in Shulchan Aruch, which means something that pertains to us today. Shulchan Aruch, our present-day set of laws, brings this question. What is the din, the case of Eliyahu Hanavi, who was nostalgic, he left this world, he rose up to heaven, that means that it was as though he died, but he did not experience death. He left this world without going through the process of death. The question is now, Shekhlarach asked this question, what category would his wife be in? Is his wife considered a widow, meaning that she is permitted to marry a second person, or do we say he has not actually died, and therefore she is still bound to him, she is not a widow, she received no divorce, it is forbidden for her to remarry. This is the question brought in the Shulchan Aruch. Darach discusses this question at length, and his opinion is that his wife, the wife of Elianavi, is permitted to remarry, because since he left this earth, he has departed for Gan Eden, for heaven, then she is considered a widow. She may remarry. The Marshal disputes this, argues against this very strongly, and he says that it is forbidden for the wife of Elianavi to remarry. Before we take his reasoning, very strong reasoning, first, this point is made clear in Shulchan What difference does it make to us now whether the wife of Elian Navi may remarry or not? This is a story that took place 2,700 years ago. 2,700 years ago, how does that affect us today? We don't have an Elian Navi today. Surely, that's much further away from us than the imminent arrival of Moshiach. If we do not discuss laws of items 
that will affect us within a matter of hours or days, coming of Moshiach, why should we discuss in our Shulchan Aruch a case that took place 2,700 years ago and one that seemingly cannot have any effect upon us now? Could this be repeated? The Din says that the reason we discuss this is so that if this occurs at any time in our time, if there arises someone as great as Eliyahu Navi today, and he leaves this world without dying, we have to know whether or not his wife is considered a widow. This the Shekhnarach says very flatly and clearly. It may arise someone now, in our time, and it is that possible that it's worth having it written down in the Shekhnarach because we must be aware of this at every given moment. In case it happens now, we have to know how to rule with that person's wife. I will soon see how true that statement is. First, let's go back to the discussion on that law and a second similar law. Both interesting laws, interesting cases. As we said, the Dakimatia says that the wife of Elianavi may remarry because he is considered as though he passed away. Nistalik, we use for a tzaddik who died. Nistalik means to rise up. He has risen up to Ganadin. Whether he rose up to Ganadin through dying or just by riding up there in a fiery chariot, he is still nostalgic. And therefore, his wife is legally a widow of Mary Mary. Mashal says that the reason those rabbis maintain that his wife Mary Mary is because he is no longer considered a human being. He was converted into a malach, an angel, and therefore he no longer possesses any ties with earth, no longer any earthly ties with his wife. Hence, his wife is freed from her ties as a wife. <clears throat> she is now considered single and may remarry. However, Mashal says we find the case to the contrary. We find that one of the rabbis of the Gemara once met Eliyahu Navi in a cemetery he was carrying the body of Rabbi Akiva and about to bury him. Remember, Rabbi Akiva was killed by the Romans. His body was desecrated. They refused to have his body buried until Leonardo came down and picked up the body and went to bury it in the city of Tiberia on top of a mountain. This rabbi asked Leonardo, you are a Kohen. You are originally Pinchas. And as a Kohen, what are you doing in a cemetery? What right does a Kohen have to go to a funeral, to touch a dead body. The answer was that this is not an ordinary dead body, the Bikiv was a tzaddik, and a tzaddik is not tummy, and therefore I may handle this burial. Or, because, Jesus says, because a mace mitzvah, the Kohen finds the dead body of a Jew, even he, though he's not allowed to attend any other funeral, but in case of a mace mitzvah, he's permitted to bury this body. But this was answered in all seriousness. Now we know that a person who is dead is called Lamesim Chafshi. One who dies is exempt from all mitzvahs. There's no longer a responsibility on the part of a dead person to perform mitzvahs. And that's why there is a custom brought by Tesus, and the Gemara discusses that, that when they bury a person, they bury him in his talus. And to show that he is no longer required to perform the mitzvahs, they cut off 
one corner of the talus, or according to some, they take one of the corners, one of the tzitzis, and cover it to show that he is not required to perform this mitzvah anymore. They leave the tzitzis on because they say that when Chiyazamesim comes, he should rise with a kosher talus. Meanwhile, he's exempt from mitzvahs, and therefore, this is the symbol showing that a dead person cannot perform mitzvahs. That is why the Zayr Kodesh says that the dead crave, they actually crave the opportunity of a mitzvah done for them. Nothing can bring happiness and satisfaction to a person who passed away as much as someone who gives tzedakah on their behalf, because they themselves are incapable of performing any mitzvahs. They cannot advance progress to any degree whatsoever. So if someone gives tzedakah for them, this is the biggest happiness and satisfaction for them. So we see that a person who has passed away cannot perform mitzvahs, is not obligated to, has no requirements, yet in the case of Elianava, we see that the Gemara says distinctly, you are a Kohen, what are you doing with a dead body? What are you doing in a cemetery? This proves, the Marshal says, that Elianava is considered a living person. In fact, he comes down to earth so frequently, he is still considered alive, and therefore, legally, the din is that his wife cannot remarry. We come now to a second case, a stronger question. What about a child that was brought back to life by Eliyahu Navi? That was the prophet Yena, or the prophet Chavakot brought back to life by Elisha Navi? Let us say the same thing happened to a woman. This miracle would happen to a woman. A married woman dies. And then, after she dies, a prophet like Eliyahu Navi or Elisha Navi brings her back to life. How? Through his tefillah. Now, during the time that she was dead, her husband was no longer married to her. Now that she comes back to life, would we say that she now requires a new marriage ceremony to be reunited with her husband? Or do we say that this interim where she was actually dead, actually dead, is a case where there's no requirement, there was no actual severance, because the fact she was brought back to life means she was brought back to the same position that she held before she died. Though possibly in the interim, that she not come back to life, her husband would be free to marry a different woman, but since she was brought back to life, then there's no necessity of a new marriage. This question would seem, again, the Shekhanarach says it would seem this is a matter that happened 2,700 years ago. It is not. It happened much more recently than that. It happened in the case of Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina was the colleague of Rabbi Shimon Yechoizel. In those days, like Rabbi Akiva, his great tzaddikim married, their wives were Noshim Tzitkonyes. Their wives were outstanding in Kedusha, and they permitted their husbands to leave them and go to a distant city to a yeshiva to study Teda. Rabbi Chlina left his wife and stayed away, absent for a period of 12 years. When he returned, he had no way of foretelling when he'd come back. He did not give his wife notice. He'd be away for a certain period of time, and when he's coming back. 
This was a question mark in her mind. It could have been for a year, for 10 years, or for 50 years. There was no way she could tell. But she was that holy and that loyal that she waited patiently and happy in the knowledge that her husband was amassing a fortune of knowledge and Kedusha in Teda as a tzaddik and a London. He came back to his town after 12 years of absence. He could hardly recognize it. He didn't know where his wife was living, and he overheard someone talking, mentioning her name. So he followed this person. He came to the entrance to his home. His wife was sitting there knitting. He didn't know how to open a conversation with her. She had her head bent down over the knitting. So he just stood in front of her, waiting for her to raise her head. Suddenly she saw this shadow over her. She raised her eyes, looked at him, and she was felled by the sudden shock. The shock was so great, the shock, the happiness of seeing her husband back, was so great it was too much for her heart, and she died instantly. Michalina saw his wife lying there dead. He turned his face up to heaven and said, very short tefillah, Hashem, this poor woman who made such a tremendous sacrifice over the years, is this her reward? Just that one statement was so powerful, this tefillah was so holy, that it immediately brought her back to life. He performed the same act as Eliyahu Navi and as Elisha Navi. She came back to life, and here the Shekhanach says, the Knesset says, we have the problem. A woman dies, when she dies her husband is a widower. Now that she is revived, she's brought back to life, does she have to go through another marriage? In the case of the Bechnina, the Gemara shows that there was no new Kiddushin necessary. This proves then, the Knesset says, that though she died, was brought back to life, she is still considered fully, legally married to her husband. Now the Chidozal writes in the Bekei Yosef, a similar case. What happens to the case of a man who dies? And then this man is brought back to life. During the time that the man is dead, his wife is a widow. This is a much more serious question. Because if she is a widow, then she may remarry. If not, if she remarries, has to show she is a married woman, and the children from the second union would be, has to show illegal children. In case a man dies and he is brought back to life, what is the status of his wife in the interim? And then again, when he comes back to life, does his wife require new kiddushin from her revived husband? And if he does, all brings an actual case in the Gemara too. Remember, we had this recently. Gemara says that Rabbo and Rabbi Zera were both very close friends. And Rabbo invited Rabbi Zera to his home to celebrate the Feast of Purim. We know, Abinadol says too, that a person, a Jew, should avoid drinking intoxicating beverages at all costs, no matter what the event, no matter what the celebration, avoid drinking whiskey or anything to make the drunkenness. 
except one day a year, that is on Purim, it's a mitzvah to become drunk. So Rabbi invited Rizera, and he said, let's drink to the point, as the Gemara demands, insists, the person should drink until he becomes incoherent, where his mind is not clear, not lucid, where he wouldn't know the difference between Aror Hamon and Baruch Mordechai. So they drank the Shmo for the sake of the mitzvah. They drank until they reached the point where they were not clear at all. In this drunkenness, Rabbi got up, took out a chalaf, it's a knife which is used to shecht animals, and walked over to Rabbi Zera. In this state of mind, he figured that he was probably a lamb, pulled his head back, and moved the knife quickly over Rabbi Zera's throat, completely slitting it, both simonim, shechting him in a very kosher manner, when both simonim are cut, the person is very, very dead. And so, Rabbi Zera was lying there in a pool of blood, dead, legally, technically, physically, beyond any question of doubt. Rabbi then quietly went off to bed, laid down and went to sleep. The next morning he had slept off this, this condition, walked over to the table and found, lo and behold, there was Rabbi Zera lying in a pool of blood. He recalled, he understood what happened. Now this presented a problem. What to do with Rabbi Zera? There's, there were a lot of strings attached to this. How to go out and face the world. And so he decided on the simplest course of action. Rabbo was a tzaddik who was so great, the Yorah says that when there was a question in heaven, in the heavenly court, in the heavenly yeshiva, a discussion, kaviyochel, debate on Hebrew law between Hashem and the Malachim, had to have an authority to determine, to decide, to judge, to rule on this question, all in heaven agreed, go to Rabbah, he is so great that his word will be accepted as a deciding factor in heaven. Since Rabbah was a ruling power in heaven, he decided to use his powers, he was Mespalel, and Rabbi Zera came back to life immediately. There was no trace of a cut, a slit, his throat was completely whole, one piece, back to life. Idozal says, of course, there's a sequel to the story. We'll take it up next Purim. Hidozal says that in this case we see that it was not just the child of the Shunamis that Elisha brought back to life, but even more recently, this was more than a thousand years later that another case of a dead person being brought back to life or where the question arises, what about the wife of Rabbi Zeta? Did she require new Kiddushin? And from the Gemara it is obvious that no new Kiddushin is needed. Which proves that in case a miracle like this is performed by a tzaddik, then the interim time that this person was dead is completely discounted. The whole middle part is perfected to a point where it does not count at all and it is as though it did not occur. Now again, still we have brought a case 
of something which occurred before the Shulchan Aruch was written. 1,500 years ago, at the time of the rabbis of the Gemara, or 1,800, 1,900 years ago, at the time of the Shemei is still way before our time. Why does the Shulchan Aruch write these laws as though they can occur in our time? Because if not, they would not be written in the Shulchan Aruch. The answer is that the rabbis of the Shulchan Aruch possessed a true emunas tzaddikim to the fullest degree. You know that in all generations, tzaddikim exist, and not just 2,700 years ago, but much later than that, there again arose tzaddikim who were that great, they could perform these miracles. We don't have to go back to 1,500 years ago. We can go back to comparatively short time ago less, much less than 200 years ago. Abenazal had a brother. Abenazal's mother and father, Benachman ben Fege, his mother's name was Fege, who was the granddaughter of the Baal Shem Tev, and her husband was Rabbi Simcha. They were married. Both of them had been raised by Baal Shem Tev's daughter. And she arranged this match between them. They were both married, Rabbi Simcha and Fega, the parents of Rabbi Nezal. You well understand these two were very holy tzaddikim. They were married, and for a period of time, for a number of years, there was no offspring. No child was born to them. And so finally, Benazal's mother decided there is a definite solution. You go to the tzaddik Amos, you ask him for a bracha, and if you have emuna in the tzaddik emes' bracha, that bracha must become fulfilled. So, Fege, Sechet Tzaddik Bracha, went to the Baal Shem Tev and asked him, please give her a bracha that she give birth to a ben zacha. Baal Shem Tev gave her this bracha, and if Sometime later, she gave birth. But she gave birth to a son after the Baal Shem Tev was nostalgic. He was not there when this bracha was fulfilled. Therefore, she named this son Yisrael, after the Baal Shem Tev, who was a Yisrael Baal Shem Tev. She named him after her grandfather, and she knew this son would be a very holy person, bearing that name, the result of the bracha of the she was happy, a wish was fulfilled. She had this child until the age of two. At the age of two, Yisrael ben Fega suddenly passed away. This was very heartbreaking to the mother, to the father, knowing that this child was born through a bracha. How strange this was, how similar this was to the case of Elisha Hanavi, 2,700 years ago. 2,500 years later, history repeats itself, practically word for word. So, she simply did what the Shunamis did. She picked up her dead child, carried him to the grave of Mezhebush, the grave of the Baal Shem Tev, placed this child on the grave, and said, is this the child I ask you for? You take him. She left the child there, the dead body of the child there, and she went home. She went home 
she cried, but her emuna in the Baal Shem Tev was so great and so pure that she knew she was not forsaking a dead child in a cemetery at night, the child to be devoured by animals or to be desecrated alone in this isolated area. The next morning, someone came to her and said he'd been passing by the outer walls of the cemetery and he heard a child crying. He walked into the cemetery, found this child lying on the Baal Shem grave, child crying and well. So they inquired and they brought the child back to its mother. This child, Abinazel's older brother, from that time on was given the name of Rabbi Yisrael Mace, Rabbi Yisrael the dead. Of course, he had come back from the dead through the Mayface, the miracle of the Baal Shem Tev, was called Rabbi Yisrael Mace. However, we see from here that, of course, that story is much longer, but bringing out only this point that pertains to our halacha. We see from here concrete proof, the wisdom, the words of the Shulchan Aruch. Here is a din that would seem to us to be passé, a din in theory only, not in fact, not in action. Yet we see where in recent times, long after the Shulchan Aruch was written, this halacha came to pass. So we do have to know the ruling in such a case. But if such a thing occurs, we know through the dinner Shekharach exactly what is to be done. Now, of course, as we said, there is a debate on one point. That debate is not resolved. So if it ever happens to you, come to me and I'll give you the final decision there. We hope. Now to go back to the story in Navi with this one thought that we must keep in mind, this one thought above all else. If we are zechet to this one point, basically we have been zechet to the top level that a Jew could hope to reach in his lifetime. And that is the implicit emuna in the Tzadik Yemes. So implicit. Look at the, the mother of Rabbeinazal, who left the child on a grave with such a firm belief, firm knowledge, without any trace of doubt, that this dead child would come back to life. She felt that the Baal Shem Tev could perform the same miracle that Elisha Hanavi did, that Elia Hanavi did. A miracle that is so great where the Gemara says very clearly, under no conditions can any angel in heaven, no matter how great he is, not even the chief angel of all, and he performed the miracle of Chiyas HaMesim, to bring a dead person back to life. And yet she was so positive that the Tzadik Emes has this power, he can do it. She was so certain that it was no surprise to her when they brought her live child back. Therefore, if we can be zechut to such type of emuna, this is the key to having your wishes, your tefillahs answered. The Shefa is constant. Such type of blessings a person needs, parnosa, livelihood, money, health, cure, problems resolved, difficulties that he experiences, he has to have these all answered in the affirmative to ease his life. The 
goodness, the kindness, the blessings descend from heaven at a constant pace. It's a question only of taking out a certain type of keli, a receptacle, a vessel in which to receive this. You need money? Put out a vessel and receive the money that is raining down from heaven. You need a cure or health? There are cures. The is coming down from heaven constantly. Put out your hands and receive it. What kind of hands does a person need to collect this type of blessings? Hands of faith. A person has this true faith in the Tzadik Emes, in his Tfilis, true faith in Hashem, true faith in the kindness of Hashem, then he can be sure that his Tfilis, these tills will be answered satisfactorily. He can be sure. Of course, if he has faith, he is sure. The degree of faith must be one that is as clear as a person's eyesight. That's how faith is tested. Faith is something that one does not see. You can never see something which requires faith. Because if you see something, it's no longer faith. It's knowledge. It's vision. Faith is tested by the degree of belief if a person with his eyes closed with faith sees something as clearly as another person sees with his eyes that faith is pure and complete that kind of faith can receive the blessings from heaven that kind of faith is necessary to have an eight-sided emis and that kind of faith ties a person tightly to make cash into the eight-sided emis and he knows that whatever he needs will be done for him through the Kayach of This, of course, was the fatal error of Gechazi, who cut this tie from Elisha Navi. Because the Tadus says that Elisha Navi came to Damascus for a special purpose. This was in Syria. What was he doing in Syria? Why did he leave Eretz He came to Syria because that was where Gechazi was staying. He came to attempt to bring Gechazi to a point of tshuva, repent for his deeds. Gechazi committed many other wrongs besides those mentioned. The Gemara says that Gechazi also had begun a new series of Avedezola. By using a special type of magnet, a magnet draws metal to it. Now, you take a calf or a horse, put horseshoes on a horse, and use a powerful magnet at a certain height, you can have that horse drawn up off the ground. Now, if that magnet is hidden, it can seem to a person that the horse is actually floating in midair. A horse rising, defying the laws of gravity. This can be done with a magnet. It is, it was done by Gechazi. Gechazi used this trick, it was a simple trick and illusion, where he raised the calf through the power of a magnet and then placed in the calf's mouth, a shem, which made the words, Hashem come out of the calf. It wasn't the calf speaking, it was the shem. But with this, he misled others, led them into idol worship. It was a new type of golden calf. And when Elisha Vikaitem is said to him, Return, do tshuva, so he said to Elisha I feel that it's too late because person can do tshuva for committing sins, no matter how serious. But a person who makes others commit sins too, a chete or machte, that person has gone too far. Uh, no matter how hard Ishlavi tried to bring him back, 
Kechzi continued to refuse. He insisted that he had gone too far. And this, Abbe Nadal says, is the worst of all sins. A person commits any type of sin, whatever, Tshuva can help to erase that sin to bring him back. Worst possible sin is when a person reaches a point where he gives up hope. He says, I've gone too far, there's no hope for me to repent. That's the worst possible sin. That's the trap that the Satan lays for a person. He is not satisfied when he makes, he leads a person to sin. His goal is to get that person to yish, to give up hope. And this was Gehazi's final undoing. A person must know that no matter how far he has descended, no matter how far he has strayed or wandered, he can always come back. There is no limit to the power of tshuva. Want to come back to Hashem, want to come back to the Tehna, to Mitzvahs, the gates of tshuva are always open. The gates of acceptance are ready to accept any person, no matter how bad or how sinful. This is the point that a person should keep up in most of his mind, the ischaskus. To know that Hashem wants us back. To know that we can do tshuva, we will be accepted. And this goes for the entire Jewish people. We should all be zechah to do tshuva collectively. And that's a host to see.